From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It may feel surreal, but it really happened. The Denver Nuggets have won it all. What an incredible game we saw tonight. 47 years for the Denver Nuggets. Congratulations. You are the 2023 NBA champions. We'll talk about what's next, including a big parade and rally. Then, mass media and elevating black voices. We'll focus on how it has evolved over time. The industry is changing by leaps and bounds, giving and lending itself to new opportunities for African-American journalists to create new platforms to tell our story. We can change the narrative. As we head toward Juneteenth, we'll get perspective about the importance of diverse representation. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's official. The Denver Nuggets are the 2023 NBA champs, and the celebrating will continue all week. There's a parade and rally on Thursday, but let's bask in the glow of last night's amazing win just a little longer. It's over! At last, the long wait is over! After 47 years, the Denver Nuggets can finally call The Denver Nuggets beat the Miami Heat in Game 5 of the NBA Finals Monday night, 94-89. to And that score is just one indication of how much of a nail-biter that matchup was down to the final seconds. It took 47 years for the Denver Nuggets to win their first NBA championship. Here to present the Larry O'Brien Trophy to the Denver Nuggets NBA Commissioner Adam Silver. What an incredible game we saw tonight. 47 years for the Denver Nuggets. Congratulations. You are the 2023 NBA champions. And soon after they sealed their victory, head coach Mike Malone said the Nuggets are not done. All the hard work, all the sacrifice, all the dedication, all culminated with us winning a championship. But I got news for everybody out there. We're not satisfied with one. We want more! We want more! Hell yeah! Indeed. According to Las Vegas oddmakers, the Nuggets are already the early betting favorite to repeat and win another NBA title next season. Coach Malone was also quick to thank the fans for their unwavering support. You know, that atmosphere tonight was incredible. They're a part of this. Our fans are a part of this. So uh, a huge shout-out to Nuggets Nation for showing up, representing, and uh, a lot of love for them. And fans are quick to return that love, noting that the Nuggets have become a dream team in every sense of the word, especially with a star player like MVP Nikola Jokic, who is both humble and gracious. Now that you guys are NBA champions and and you kind of look around the locker room and look at your teammates, who are you most happy for? All of them. You know, I think it's simple. It's all of them. You know, I'm happy for DJ. I'm happy for Jeff. I'm happy for Ish. 
literally for everybody. Uh, Mikey, yeah, he had three surgeries and still uh, came here and helped help us win the championship. Jamal, who who had a surgery and didn't play well at the beginning of the season, but we all know what he's capable of. of. So it's every KCP, you know, he brought us that championship mentality. Bruce, uh, Christian Brown, I don't want to say like little every player, every player on, on this team. Thousands of fans spent the night celebrating in the streets around Ball Arena. We caught up with a few of them before the big win about what this championship series and the team have meant to them. Yeah, I've lived here since 1972. And uh, when, when my son was born, I knew it was something that we could get involved with together. And we've been fans for a long time, ever since the George Carl era, maybe a little bit before that. But yeah, we were waiting for a championship for a long time. Colorado born and raised, been a Nuggets fan since I was born. I've waited my whole life for this. The season's been great. It's been fun to watch these guys grow, come together as a team, watch Jamal get healthy. You know, we knew they had some championship caliber. They brought in the right pieces. We got the real deal going on. This is not a fluke for all the people that don't really care or know about us. I see a lot, a lot of yelling and screaming. That's been a long time coming. We've been waiting for a long time for this. That was Mike Dizik and Jackie and Adam Williams. Again, there will be a parade and rally on Thursday to celebrate the Nuggets' first ever NBA championship win. The parade starts at 10 a.m. at Union Station in downtown Denver. That's at 17th and Winecoop. It will go down 17th Street to Broadway and end with a rally at Civic Center Park. And here's a fun fact for you. The O'Brien Trophy and the Stanley Cup awarded to the National Hockey League champs have never been won by franchises in the same city in the same year. Both the Denver Nuggets and the Colorado Avalanche are the reigning champions. And technically speaking, Denver does hold both prizes, if only for a short time longer, once the NHL finals are over, which could end tonight. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. Juneteenth is Monday. It's been a federal holiday since 2021. Short for June 19th, it commemorates the date in 1865 when some enslaved black people were finally informed that they had been freed as slavery had ended in the United States. As part of that commemoration, CPR News has partnered with Cleo Parker Robinson Dance, the historic dance company based in Denver, to create community forums aimed at elevating black voices in Colorado. I'll be leading a live conversation with the dance company's namesake and founder, along with DEI scholar Dr. Brenda Allen there at 2 p.m. on Saturday, just down the street from Denver's annual Juneteenth Festival taking place this weekend on Welton Street. So feel free to stop by and listen in. Today, we want to share part of last year's conversation. The topic was Black Voices Matter, the impact of black communications and journalism. Dr. Brenda Allen with the University of Colorado Denver facilitated. We'll hear from her first, followed by the panelists. To set us up, I have just a general definition 
first of all, I, as a communication professor and as a black communicator myself, thank you very much, uh, I view communication very simply as ways that human beings share meaning, mm. period. And then when it comes to black communications, I see that as the multitude of ways that black people express and share meaning, right? That reflects and represents the rich diversity, of cultural, social, economic, and political experiences of black people across the diaspora. I'm Mailman Dotson from the Drop 1047, the people station for R&B and hip hop. Why black voices matter to me, like, you know, I'm, I'm highly into the, to the music, you know, uh, lyricism, you know, rap, uh, hip hop, R&B, you know, and um, that's important, you know what I mean? The, the stories that are told, the culture, you know, the, um, the movement behind those, those things, you know, that's super important to me. So that's why I went to school for radio, you know, I felt like there wasn't a lot of representation. I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me. Oh, I mean, it's radio, you know what I'm saying? But I didn't yeah. see a lot of people that looked like me and I didn't hear a lot of voices that sounded like me, that used my slang, that, that you know, was passionate about the same things that I was passionate about. It was very scarce for that. And I, I just was, I was inspired by it and I wanted to be, you know, somebody that could provide that because I, I was missing it in my life. So uh, that's why, you know, black voices are important to me, especially in journalism. Uh, Chuck D said something uh, that I actually wrote my, college paper on it was a uh, hip-hop is the cnn of the hood you know like that's that's where we get our news you know we can we can be open we could talk we could say we could be ourselves and you know express the messages that are important to us and you know it spreads so uh that, that always stuck with me and um that's why i wanted to get in the radio so that's me i do music mailman i'm on the radio that's why Shakira Wedrick Hollowell. I am the managing editor of Accountability and Outreach at Colorado Public Radio. Yeah. I am from Denver, born and raised. I actually um, started off as a child in the projects across the street at East Villages. I have grown up always wanting to be a journalist. To come back and be a journalist here across the street from East Villages is everything to me. So um, I think that's why I'm being a communicator and being representing my culture is important. And the role I have now, I get to take that culture and bring it in my newsroom and share the cultures with the newsroom, with the community and the community in the newsroom, which is like the ideal job for someone like me because I like people, but I get to share my culture with everyone. Um, and that's a part of being a, a journalism is informing, educating and sharing. I'm Stefan Brackett. My rap name is Br'er Rabbit. Um, I am the currently the Colorado Statewide Music Ambassador. I'm always happy to say I'm the first black one, but I'm only the second ambassador, so Colorado's been doing that right. I would say the black communication is a way of expressing meaning despite, in spite of uh, repressive forces. And I, I don't think it's a, a coincidence that if we're talking about like what Barry Gordy is saying, music being the soundtrack of our lives, was well, not a surprise that black music is also the moral soundtrack of this country. It has not been a surprise that the movements led by black people have also been the things that have realigned this country towards a morality that's never had before. And the music also was the, the undergirding rhythm, the beat that helped us stay in that line. So I feel like black communication, not, not using blackness as otherness, but blackness as being in some ways, black communication is one of the more true forms of communication because it has to fight to be accepted 
The defaults don't apply to it. The vocabulary that we use, we have to make up. We have to create our own lexicon. We have to create our own beat. We have to create something that is divergent in order for it to penetrate. And that's why it is like the music of our ancestors is the downbeat of this entire country and every musical movement that's come out of it from country to jazz to rock. Even if we want to bleach the contributions to such a point that people don't think that rock and roll is black music, um, we know the actual truth and case. So for me, I think in some ways, black communication is also original communication. It's a communication that remembers, does not forget, and does not abandon. Really appreciate that idea of in spite of, and think about, especially in the United States, because certainly we're talking globally, right? right? And specifically in the United States, when you think about our ancestors were brought here against their will, and we think about the persistence of language, the persistence of drum beat, right? The persistence of, I, I'm, I was fortunate in terms of part of my education uh, in, in communication of learning that ways that some of the and some of you know this already, but in case you don't, I think it's crucial to your point that ways we communicate for, for instance, a double negative. Right. That that actually is a linguistic construction. It's not that we are we don't understand standard English or we're inferior. It's really a testament to the persistence of our linguistic ancestry, which is so extremely powerful. And I know we see it persist through so many other things, right? And, and I, I also wanted to just say to you specifically how much I appreciate your commitment, right, to bringing that forward. And I'm, I can only imagine the kind of challenges all of y'all have had in your various roles, but certainly when we think about journalism, right, in terms of that. So thank you for that as well. My name is Alfonso Porter. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Denver Urban Spectrum, a 35-year-old award-winning publication. Yeah. Here in Denver, I feel compelled to do a shout out for our publication, which won 13 Colorado Press Association Awards this year for excellence in journalism. Yeah. I'm also the publisher of Blizzy Magazine, which is a new publication focused on the African-American cannabis community. Mm. And since we're talking about communication, we're talking about being able to communicate in an era that is now burgeoning. We're right at the beginning of what I call the Microsoft, <laughs> like the Microsoft moment in a new industry. I also happen to be a journalism professor at MSU Denver. Mass media portrays and conveys images and reflections that inform how we feel and how we view one another. But more than that, it, it gives us an opportunity to tell stories. But unfortunately, the stories about African-Americans have not been as positive. Obviously, you know that as reporters and journalists, we tell the story from a perspective. And although we are called upon to be unbiased, objective, and fair, we're, we're still human beings. At the beginning, not so long ago, African-American publications were all throughout the United States. Every city, small city, large city, small communities had an African-American publication that would tell the stories of the community. But with the advent of affirmative action, 
large white newsrooms vacuumed all of that talent out of the black newsroom, leaving it almost bare, leaving us struggling in a way to where the messages for us and about us tended to get lost in a way. The good news is, is that the industry is changing by leaps and bounds, giving and lending itself to new opportunities for African-American journalists to create new platforms to tell our story. In this way, I think that we can change the narrative and enhance what it is we see and what it is we hear. We know that on the evening news still to this very day, the portrayal of the African-American male particularly, the portrayal of the African-American community in general uh, tends to still be stereotypical and negative. But we have the chance now to rewrite that in a 21st century context. What kinds of challenges have you faced personally and professionally related to this overarching topic of Black communications and Black voices matter in uh, communication overall and in journalism specifically and other forms, what kind of challenges have you faced and how are you aware of striving to meet those challenges? I think certainly as an educator at the university and, and working to bring forth the next generation of journalists, the challenges are a sense of helplessness in many newsrooms and, and um, in the broadcast house. For example, you may have a black face reporting the news, but you're very powerless as to how that story is told from a production standpoint. For example, I was listening to a broadcast where they were talking about the 50th anniversary of Watergate. And they talked about the two white police officers who ultimately wound up arresting the suspects at the Democratic National Committee. What they failed to mention was that there was a black security guard who discovered the tape on the door that then triggered the communication to the police department, which then led to that whole thing. And so essentially, while the white officers are being held as a hero in today's framework, the black security guard who initiated all of this, without whom none of this would have happened, was completely erased from the story. And that tends to be one of our significant challenges is that we need more voices, more voices who look like us and sound like us to tell these stories. I'm happy to tell you that we are um, working very diligently to diversify our department at MSU Denver to bring more young African-Americans and people of color in general into the profession. I really appreciate that example for two reasons. One is really to stress why representation matters, because you are aware of that particular history, first of all. And second, you're in a position and you can, you can work within your sphere of influence or power. We all have some, right? Even though we may feel powerless, there's somebody by default or by design, we can make a difference, right? So in your role, you knowing that, and also in here, you're sharing that with us as a specific example, as well as an invitation to say, we've got to unearth those unheard stories. We've got to share them first. That's wrong. And second is to think about why it is important to share those kinds of stories to inspire and actually to call, right, to require 
anyone who is a journalist, regardless of their identity, we should have policies, procedures, education, et cetera, in place that no matter who you are, this is part of what you do. Got to give equitable. You got to like dig a little deeper. And what I have seen in my life is many of those stories now actually literally being unearthed. Yeah. And, and there's more and more and more, right? There's so much that we do not know. So thank you so very much. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Brenda. I also might add, and this, this kind of goes to the, the point I was making earlier, the reporter was an African-American reporter. It was the managing editor and the anchor of NBC News, Lester Holt, who would, you would imagine would have that knowledge. And so, or not, right? Depending on where I can only imagine when mm -hmm. he had his education and whether or not he's staying updated, et cetera, et cetera. Literally, uh, you know, that's kind of why I went to uh, school for journalism. You know, Sean Schaefer, he's like that. He basically popped it to me like that. Like, we need, we need you guys. We need young African American voices on this side of the game. You know, and one of the challenges that I faced that I didn't think that I would have to face is like cold switching. You know what I mean? Like, you got to change the way you speak. That was one of the things that was hard to adjust to. Like, this is what I hear on the radio. It sounds like this, and I have to, you know, I have to um, report in such a way like this for it to be professional or be accepted. But it's like, no, you know, I should be able to speak my truth. I should be able to talk about the stories that are important to me in the way that I'm naturally able, like the way I talk about it. So that, that's a, a challenge that I felt like, I faced as far as like trying to find my voice and trying to figure out how to be credible, still sound knowledgeable, but still, you know, keep my integrity to my people. Like right. we having a conversation. So, you know, um, I think that's one of the challenges that, that uh, I think radio personalities face because, you know, again, like when you hear other personalities are, are reporters, it, it sounds a certain way. And it's almost like, that's how I have to sound. That's how I have to show up in communication for me to be accepted or for people not to think I'm ghetto or stupid. You know what I mean? Because I'm using slang. But back to what you were saying, you know, both of you all were saying like, now there was a point of time where we can say our own things and no one would know what we were saying. We, we, it's often easy, right? Like, we can say whatever we want and people will look at us like, what are they talking about? Now we can't do that anymore. We're all in black culture, black language, black slang is the culture. Everybody's lit. We're all lit. Everybody <laughs> turned up. It doesn't matter. So there's not a lot of like, we don't have our own, you know what I'm saying? We, we've had a permeated and we're popular culture now. So like, you can't even watch a King Supers commercial without getting low, you know? Like, you know what I'm saying? So you can't watch sports. You can't do anything without hip hop and our culture coming through. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's, you know, that, that's the biggest thing. Stay true to that, honing that, nurturing that. Don't cold switch, you know. Say it how you need to say it. Get it across the way. The, the, the listeners, the audience, they need to hear it so they can accept it and digest it and move on to the next one. But be natural. Be yourself. I just want to add on to that because, I mean, I'm feeling it 110% about feeling like you have to be a certain way to fit into the room. And the challenges I've always had has been this, right? But I think now we as corporations and organizations are being more intentional about allowing us to be ourselves. So when I say, I don't code switch at CPR, I do not, okay? <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So like, and I, a wise person once told me like, I'm from East Side Denver and I'm, I'm used to checking Shakia at the door. Check the East Side at the door. I bring Shakia, I bring the East Side to CPR. That's, you know, that's just how we make that bridge. Right? So, um, Excellent. Thank you so much. This is such a 
complex, richly textured topic that you brought into this space that implies so many challenges, right? uh, The challenge of deciding whether or not to close switch, the challenge of now, you know, on the one hand, yay, you know, we see blackness everywhere to a certain extent, because a question I have a little later on is like the so what, you know, is one thing to say, yeah, you know, commercials and all that, but how does that translate economically? How does that translate in terms of true opportunities and being accepted and, you know, getting in leadership positions and so forth? And however, to your point, you know, so now what is actually ours in terms of cultural appropriation? Along with the idea that we are also very diverse within ourselves. And so you, you didn't speak to this point, but I, I imagine we all have some experience with it, which is this notion of, for instance, of sounding white, mm-hmm. right? So there's so many complexities in terms of Black voices. And to your point, of one of the things that I love about language is the opportunity to critique it. So in thinking of professionalism, you're in a certain organization, What's the difference between slang and jargon, right? So you can use professional jargon, which is your community, your language of your profession. But if you use slang, that can tend to be looked down upon when actually that's also language, right? And back to the notion of communication is however we share meaning with one another, technically, if you understand me, right, we have communicated. So there's really no right or wrong. There are conventions, there are standards. And unfortunately, in most instances, there's a dominant notion of what that is. And it's very rigid. And it's either that or you are less than or you're not smart or you're not whatever. Right. In ways that are challenging that some of us will continue, I believe, make important decisions to code switch in some situations. Right. Uh, But I think it's important to make that an actual decision. You can be empowered in being complicit. You can decide, you know, in this moment, yep, I'm going to write like this because that'll give me published. I'm going to say it this way because that's what I was about. As long as you don't feel fully compromised. I mean, that you have to make these individual decisions. Part of how I dealt with that was I, I got a sense early on after being recruited to see Boulder from Howard University, in 1989, amazing that I've been here over 30-some years anyway, uh, and, and this community has just embraced me. I'm so grateful to y'all. But I realized that I, there are some things in order for me to make it to the table, to then be able to now, I'm, I say y'all, right? And unapologetically, I do other kinds of things. And however, I realized that, you know, if I had not done certain things, and I'm, I'm confident that some of y'all will face situations where you may you just think about the decision you're making and be empowered within it. I just wanted to offer that as part of the these this is so very complex. And I'm so grateful that y'all are in places, and not only in places, but it's who you are, that perhaps it's not, you know, negotiable for you. And I applaud you for that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, like I will piggyback on yeah. you, like because that's why like that's why I love the drop so much, you know, because I don't have to cold switch, right? Yeah. Like since the late eighties, like this is the first time we've had like all black air staff on FM radio, you know, like so so we're sharing our stories. Like I get to talk to my coworkers, like I get to talk to my coworkers, like we, you know, just how we normally do. And and it's important, you know, like one of the biggest things that shook me up before I got into radio was when Nipsey Hustle died. Y'all remember when Nipsey Hustle yeah. died? Yeah. That hurt, right? That, that hurt. That was an L, you know, and uh, I remember listening to radio. 
and uh, one of the popular hip hop and R and B stations, one of the most popular. I'm not gonna say no names, ain't gonna name nobody, but but we you know, already know they were talking about Nipsey Hussle's death, and it was just like, yeah, you know, you live by the gun, you die by the gun, you're a gang man, you know, and it was it was cringe. It was like, yo, like you don't even know this man, like how you don't know what he's done for the community, you don't know how uh, many projects he's incubated, you don't know how many inspirational things they said to the youngsters in his, his area. Like this man was very he was a he was a centerpiece you know and it's like that moment for me was just like nah but like we need to tell our stories we need to be talking about why this death is so hurtful you know and, and tell his story and control that narrative because that's not fair and we, we gotta we gotta talk about this and we gotta completely flip that around because like we have to control our own narratives we have to we have to speak on our own stories we have to use you know our passion and our culture to spread that message. And I think that's like super important. So like, yeah, I, I didn't want to throw that out there. Thank you so very much. And again, for that strong, powerful example, right? Of these moments. And, and I love how, what y'all are sharing, you are displaying this sort of critique, this sort of lens, right? Of looking for opportunities, looking for examples and moments to have a counter narrative, right? Uh, looking for moments to share, just as, as, as we're having this conversation, you're not only sharing examples, I hope y'all in the audience are thinking of some uh, examples you're aware of, or thinking of opportunities you've had, or you may make uh, related to these topics. I wanna talk about education. Like, so we're talking about how do we tell our own stories. Yeah. And I just have a question for any of the black folk in the audience. Like, how many of you grew up believing that your ancestry and your skin color was an asset. Is there anybody like, just show your, like raise your hand if you grew up knowing that your ancestry and such was an asset. Okay. Yeah, some, but not all. I put my hand all, all the way down. Yeah, so cause, cause you, you were not shown the opposite. So yeah. one of the things, and in when we're talking about journalism and how we learn about ourselves and how we speak about ourselves, a lot of us come to the empowering stories far later than we would like it to be. So our organization, Youth on Record, we're in Denver Public Schools. It's, it was one of the things, um, the thing I'm most proud that my band helped create. Yeah. Right? So like now we're, we're serving around 3,000 students a year. We teach local musicians to teach courses and we bring them into schools, often where the music and arts programs have been taken out. A lot of times we have to make the argument, well, why music and arts? Well, music and arts are one of the only times where you don't have to necessarily give the written answer. You can actually give your answer, your your, your teacher will be looking for your interpretation. It's, it's one of the ways that our students can practice freedom. But beyond that, when we're talking about like how many people raised their hands and didn't raise their hands, there's one course that has been shown like by data that actually changes the, the opportunities by a large amount by like how much children of color will graduate high school. And that course is ethnic studies. And there's nothing magical necessarily per se about the course. But it's the fact that if it's taught in a certain way, it necessarily visibilizes the identities of the students in the classroom, right? Because to do anything else, we are teaching the narrative for this skin color in this country has been the shadow to whiteness. Yeah. That's the default. If we're not teaching the opposite, that is the default. That, I'm imagining that's why your hand was so low, right? So also, my sister is an educator. Um, I've talked to many educators and there's been so many like, Black educators who've gone into elementary classrooms and have told the story truthfully about slavery. And do you know what an average seven-year-old's response is 
when they find out that they are the descendants of slaves? It's not pride. No, because it, it's, it's a story of disempowerment. So then also, when we are telling our stories, how do we tell the stories of resistance and power? And then in between, we can put in the, the, the struggle. It has to be a, a sandwich where the bread is resistance on each side so we can tell the stories of our power. Because often, otherwise, we can sometimes think that we're being real and we're being honest and we're telling the disempowering narrative. So I, I think it's so incredible like when you're talking about like, when you're on the drop with an all black staff, that's telling another narrative. And then how do we get the narratives to go further and further back? How do we get it so everybody in this room, or at least the kids of the next generations, when they're told like, is your skin an asset? Are you a gift? Everybody raises their hands. If we aren't working towards that, because you're like, if what, so what, right? How do we tell the story of our power and our contribution with our struggle? So it can be real. As you were talking, Stephen, I was thinking about the Clark Dahl test mm. from the 1930s or so, which then led to Brown v. Board, wherein black kids were shown a white doll and a black doll, and they would automatically pick the white doll as the good one yeah. and point to the black doll as the bad one in, in uh, you know, uncertain terms. And saying how far we've come and how far we still have to go in order to get to the point to where we view ourselves through the lens of more positivity and authenticate who we really are. And I, pre I also appreciate uh, Mailman's uh, comments about being real, yeah. about being authentic in who you are. We oftentimes say we, we, we have to put the face on. And in putting the face on, in so many cases, we lose essentially who we are. Mass media, and I mean, when I, we say mass media, we're saying not just radio, not just TV. We're talking magazines. We're talking newspapers. We're talking billboards. We're talking social media. We're talking all, all other forms, textbooks, for example. I was called on to teach a course in mass media, and the textbook I noticed very quickly, uh, had no one else other than white individuals having created anything. There were no instances of Asians or Africans or anybody else uh, having created these modes of communication. And I thought that it was quite disconcerting because I was teaching largely a group of Latino and African-American students. And the images that, we, that I had to put in front of them was some gentleman from Europe who brilliantly did this or that or the other thing. And again, we're completely written out of the story. Um, I was also thinking about Blizzy Magazine, the cannabis publication that I'm doing now, and getting outside of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Because this is the substance that has done untold damage to our communities all across this country. We have paid the price for this drug. Now, now we're finding out, since it's legal, that it has all these medicinal benefits, and now Big Pharma is now in interested. So now here comes Big Pharma. Here comes the tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars being vacuumed out of our community yet again through the legalization of this substance that has done so much harm. And again, that war on drugs that was created 50 years ago by Richard Nixon, purposely, and this is... This verbatim, we've got to make sure that we portray African-Americans as thugs and hoodlums on the evening news. Show them being arrested and create the image 
that this is who they are. And so this is a brand new industry. And I want for us to be informed. What is the legislative concern? What are the rules of the game? How do you take advantage in a business capacity in this industry, et cetera, right? And so what's so good about it is that you can stay in your lane. You don't necessarily have to sell marijuana in order to be in the cannabis business. If you stay in your lane, much like I'm a journalist and a publisher, I can put out a publication to inform my community, to communicate better where nobody else is doing so. We're one of two black publications in this space right now. And, you know, we're, I mean, we're quite proud of that right now. And, and we're, not talking about, we're not talking about weed and all of the things that it does for you, from what I hear. <laughs> but, but what we're talking about is legitimate business and how we can get into an industry in a real way that it is pumping in this year an estimated $100 billion to the U.S. economy. And we're only one-third the way through in legalizing the states uh, in the country. So it represents something that we can flip the script. That thing which used to harm us so much can now enrich us in untold ways. You all have raised this crucial point, overarching point about education and ways that current educational systems in many ways, right? where oh, black voices are omitted or distorted or they're singled out in a particular way as if that's the only voice, for example, et cetera. So I'd love to hear more from each of you, from your perspectives, as we think about a better world. In a better world, what kinds of education would be going on related to black voices matter, related to thinking about black communications? Mm-hmm. And I and just imagine a way, right, uh, whether it is something that feels like, wow, I don't know how we'd ever get there. And yeah, here's a vision. Or it could be something you already know and are doing that can become sort of a model. But what would you what would you think of for that? You know, what? I'm actually thinking about the progress that we make at CPR when it comes to giving each other voices. We're going through like a DI initiative, like we're humanizing each other. Mm. These are things that are required by everybody in our newsroom and our entire company. So it's about humanizing each other um, and embracing each other in the world, right? So I, I think about the that's like the now was. You get to continue to have um, these kind of activities and conversations where we are included and not just present. But we are included and we are valued. Yeah. And it comes to those things where you're like, oh. How'd this story get onto the news? And was there not one brown person in the room to say no? I mean, sometimes I'm that one brown person in the room. Who knows? You know, but we have to get to, to the point where we have more brown people in the room. Um, and that's the now what, is to keep diversifying ourselves about each other and diversifying our communities, our businesses, our educators, our schools, is, is to make us more humanizing of each other. In addition to all the other things that I'm doing, Uh, I'm also the director of student media at MSU Denver. Excellent. Where we have the TV, radio, KMET, magazine and newspaper. uh, And we get to frame the stories now. And I get a lot of African-American students who are coming to me talking about the fact that they're not hearing their voices at all. And they come to me wounded and hurt. 
And so now we're beginning to put on programs, podcasting and broadcasts that address this, that gives them an opportunity for for taking space to talk about issues that are germane to the black student experience on campus. And I think that that'll go a long way in helping to at least address some of this. And I can I can also dovetail, Dr. Brenda, that with with my white students, they're afraid to cover black events. And I'm try, I have been trying my best to figure out where that comes from. And so I intentionally throw them in the deep end of the pool and I'll assign them to Juneteenth because they need to understand that it is not black reporting. Right. <laughs> it is not Latino reporting or Asian reporting or white reporting. You're simply reporting a story and you're telling the who, what, when, where, why, how, et cetera, yeah. Yeah. of what is going on. So you're simply writing a piece. Yeah. And I get such blowback, particularly from my newspaper team. Well, you know, it's Black History Month and I don't want to say anything. I don't want to I don't want to ask the wrong kind of question because I'm I just I'm, I'm just fearful. And so that's one of the things that we have to get over, I think, is this latent fear that people have that I'm going to ask the wrong question, I'm going to say something wrong, and now I'm going to ensnare myself in a racial issue. To your point, these issues matter for all of us. So we say Black voices matter. Black voices matter for everybody, right? <laughs> it's not just, it's certainly crucial that we as Black people know that our voices matter and why and how. And it's crucial for everyone else, like thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and belonging, and whatever else we're calling it these days, these issues are crucial for every single one of us, as we already always also foreground the minoritized, right, that have been left out. So I thank you so much for, for that specific, another example, and thinking about by default or by design, how are you helping in terms of Black Voices Matter? And what are some ideas? I think for me, just being a good representation of, of the culture, you know what I mean? Like, you can turn up, you can be litty, all of that, but you can also be educated. We can go and graduate college and still drop bars on hot beats. Like, yeah. you can do all of that. You can be yourself in every sense of you, but still getting them important that news out, you know, those important yeah. messages out to the people that it matters to for me, you know, and um, yeah, I think that's that's my role. And I, I, I take it seriously. I, I'm humbled and very honored to be in it. That's the role. Too often we're represented as one dimensional, right, mm. as opposed to extremely complex. And that's part of getting to know one another. Right. Of understanding there's more to me than meets the eye, even though what meets the eye matters. Right. So it's, there's so much to just, and, and also to uh, approach this with the sense of awe, the sense of curiosity uh, for any time you have a sense of fear, especially this fear of, will I say or do the wrong thing? Those of us who are in a position to create contexts where we will anticipate that that may happen, but also allow it to happen. Also, just don't go off on your own and randomly, hey, you're black. Tell me about duck da right? Uh, may not work, right? Even us as black folks, right? He's trying to engage with one another. So excellent points. So I just have a quick question for all of y'all. Does anybody out there have a rough approximation of what like Justin Bieber's net worth is? And Justin Billions, maybe. Nope, not billions. Um, but like he's around 250 million, right? What do you all think Aretha Franklin's estate was worth when she died? 60 million. 
Wow. So now Aretha's catalog is probably worth more than $250 million, but Aretha does not have control of her catalog. For a second, I was gonna do a thought paper or like a short story on an alternative timeline where all the people in Motown got to hold on to their intellectual property. Woo. And then like you would have millionaires, possibly billionaires at this point in time with how music catalogs and all these things accrue value. And then how would that have changed the city of Detroit to have generations and generations of black wealth in Detroit? I'm saying this because the system as, it had, as they've been built, black people do not own the rights to our music, to our catalogs. It's an asset that only increases in value over time. How many of these songs that are played at every single wedding were written by black hands, but these black hands are not profiting from it? And so I'm, I'm bringing all these things up, not just to say like, this is a problem, but how do we orient ourselves with our intellectual property in a way that is not informed by the plantation? Because just a few people getting rich is not the solution either, right? If we continue to use the industry's ways, the industry will teach us how to divide, conquer, and exploit from each other. So how do we do the opposite? How do we start coming together if there's a way, and there is, and actually we've seen it. We saw it in Tulsa. We actually saw it in Five Points, one of the last black Wall Streets to exist in the United States of America. There's opportunities that when we get together and we have the opportunity of ownership, we will actually create a black dollar that will lift us all. So I think we need to just remind ourselves of those models and be looking to them. How many of y'all are from Denver, like born and raised? All right. The real DC, right? <laughs> Recently. But I gotta tell you, like growing up in Denver in the 90s, if you wanted to be in a black community, it was very easy. Uh, you could go to City Park on Sundays and it would just be filled with black family. Oh Lord, yeah. You go to Five Points at any time. And like, I just wanna highlight that because it's not like it's impossible here. As a matter of fact, it was here. Up to like 10 years ago, yeah. we had a thriving black economy. Um, so, it does, so what that says to me is that we can have it again. And at the same time, if we're understanding the story and the history of this city, as black people, as citizens, we can also do the due diligence of being compassionate to stories and fighting for stories that are not our own. So we can look to people of the, the youth tribe. We can be like, oh, this is what we've experienced. But you know what? I see even less indigenous doctors. Like, I see Reservation Dogs is like one of the only shows with an actual indigenous writer's room. Right. So as a black person, I can also advocate for those things. If we start, if we start fighting for other folks as well, I think then we are really learning the conditions for a victory for what Layston Hughes said, America was never America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. That will be, can be in our hands. That was a panel discussion recorded last Juneteenth at Cleo Parker Robinson Dance in partnership with CPR. Dr. Brenda Allen from UCD moderated the panel. The topic was Black Voices Matter, the impact of Black communications and journalism. The panelists were CPR Shakia Wedgworth-Hollowell, Stephen Brackett, the state of Colorado's music ambassador, Mailman Dodson with The Drop Radio, and Alfonso Porter of the Denver Urban Spectrum newspaper and a journalism professor at Metro State University. We're sad to say since that recording, Alfonso Porter passed away unexpectedly in March, but clearly his contributions to the community live on through his work. <laughs> 
I'll be leading a live conversation at Cleo Parker Robinson Dance with Cleo Parker Robinson, along with panel moderator, DEI scholar, Dr. Brenda Allen at 2 p.m. on Saturday, just down the street from Denver's annual Juneteenth Festival, taking place this weekend on Welton Street. We invite you to stop by and listen in. We'll also put the details in today's Colorado Matters podcast on our website, CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to our own home team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.